Hey, yo, what's good, Internet? It's the Harvest of Colin Atrophy, and I am very happy to welcome you to episode 40, the big 4-0 of um, Life Harvester Radio, my podcast. It's now having a midlife crisis, I guess. Is that what happens at 40? I don't know. I'm almost 40. Uh, pushing 40, as Francesca would say, and I am um, I am not having a crisis. I mean, I guess I changed genders, right? Is That's probably pretty crisis-y. Anyway, whatever. Listen, um... There's fireworks, you're going to hear them. I'm sorry, I procrastinated it all day recording this intro, and now it's nighttime, and the um, people are setting off fireworks outside my house like they've been doing every night of shelter-in-place. Uh, not usually the summertime thing in my neighborhood, uh, but apparently this summer, everyone's so bored, they're just blowing off steam, whatever. Uh, more power to them. I wish my dog wasn't scared. I personally like fireworks. Guest this month, uh, very exciting, Paula Martinez. One half of the mystification zine, which is easily the best hardcore fanzine currently going, maybe ever. Paula was a phenomenal guest. Uh, she has led a super interesting life. Um, she's from Brazil, grew up in Miami, uh, was undocumented for a time as a kid, and talks about all that. Also drops some bombs on me. Really, truly blew my mind a couple times. Not to mention, opened the interview by complimenting me a bunch. Although they're like compliments about how sloppy I am, so that's maybe not compliments, but I liked it, which means you got to hear it. Plus, I think it led to a pretty cool conversation. So here we go. say this about you Colin and it's something I admire so much is that I can tell that you're not a perfectionist and you just fucking do shit and like put it out and it's like but you also grow so much as you are doing things and it's really inspirational oh no shit that's really nice to hear yeah wow like I think also because I've listened to so much uh Life Harvester Radio and because I read your newsletters like I see your writing get better, your interviewing get better. Not that it was ever like bad to start with, sure. but there's a lot of progression. And I also work in the same way where I just like put stuff out a lot and don't, I'm not like a super editor. Yeah. And it's like nice to see that happen. And it like gives me some satisfaction that like, this is a really valid form of creating. It's like totally good to just put stuff out and like want to get it out you know, want to like express yourself in the moment and not have to feel like the weight of perfection is like there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's really cool to hear. A, it's fucking great to mm-hmm. hear. That's like, I think you know this as someone that makes stuff. It's great to hear from a person, period, that has, that like draws some kind of inspiration or relates in any way to the things that you do. Totally. But also, and this is the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, is this like um, thing that I think is really beautiful in punk, which is, and like I'm sure it exists elsewhere. Like one time, um, my mom, one time my mom had breast cancer is something I was about to say. Um, <laughs> a few years ago, my mom had breast cancer. She is fine now, uh, you know, uh, kin her poo poo poo. But um, I became aware of these networks of women that, that are breast cancer survivors that then share their um, like emotional resources and also share the like expensive ass wigs they bought and shit yeah. with 
other women that are getting breast cancer. So like my mom got breast cancer. She like got given wigs before she was wow. went out and bought one of her own. And then she gave all of her wigs away. She actually mailed them to like a punk in the Bay Area. Wow. Um, and when I learned about that, I was like, mom, you guys are, I thought only punks did mutual aid. And she was like, <laughs> like, Colin, other people besides punks are nice to each other. Like you don't have, um, the monopoly, the monopoly of like community based kind, kindness. Right. And, and I, and so what I was about to say was, I think there's this thing that's specific to punk, but it, who knows? It might be everywhere. But this thing that I've been really thinking about lately and that I've like, almost wanted to write about in the newsletter but have been apprehensive to because I don't know how to do it without sounding like I'm gloating Mm -hmm. is um, this feeling of mutual admiration Mm -hmm. that I have been experiencing a lot lately where like um, this band Constant Insult just came here and the one of the singers of Constant Insult is uh, was in this band Frozen Teens who's this band from Minneapolis that I fucking love I like played their record till it sounds different you know like yeah. i played it so many times it's audibly worn out from yeah. playing it so much because i love it it's so good the songs are so good and when i met i don't know that maybe will and i had met when I, like before i got sober and i was blacked out and i don't remember it but like when will and i met recently as like two grown-up adults um, he was like, oh yeah, like I'm a teacher and I, I use Slice Harvester in my high school class as like an example of stuff. I've been a big fan of your work for a really long time or whatever. And it feels like, um, I don't know how to share that without being like, someone's a fan of my work. But like, that's not the point. The point is I had been just like spinning his record forever. And then, and the feeling of being, of having the thing that I do admired by someone who's thing i admire no totally right is like 100 it's times amazing. better yeah. than just anyone like the expectation if you do a thing is that hopefully someone likes it yeah right like i think we can agree where it's not like maybe there's something inherently narcissistic about just making anything fine i'm comfortable with that yeah but um getting it having it be liked by someone who's who who makes things that i like is the most amazing feeling i think mm-hmm. and i like I told you before, when we were eating pizza, I'm so impressed with demystification, your zine. Mm, I am like, thank you. truly, truly, truly think it's one of the greatest zines currently going and also maybe that I've ever read. I am so into it. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's my first good zine. Um, How many so zines I'm, did you do before it? I made like a lot of zines as a teenager. Okay. Um, and I've made zines like pretty consistently. Like I think the biggest gap was before demystification from the point where me and Ambrose agreed to start making a zine and when it actually got made. (laughs) Is the biggest gap? Yeah. Okay. Um, Since maybe I was like 14 or something. Whoa. Um, Let's, let's get, let's end on demystification, but let's start. You were born in Brazil. I was born in Brazil, in Northeast Brazil, yeah. Yeah, and you you grew up there. What, how old were you when you came here? Uh, Well, my mom moved to the United States when I was four. Uh And before she moved, like, I lived in an apartment where there's me, my mom, my grandma, my grandpa, my uncle. Um, and we all were super close. Like my grandma is like a total alpha or was like a total alpha. And so she's always been like head of household, absolute like ruler, authoritarian vibe of the house. 
And my mom moved to the United States um, because she started dating someone who lived here. Mm-hmm. And so when I was seven, I came over and lived with my mom in South Florida in Broward County. In Broward County. Yeah. But it's also like pretty funny because my mom, instead of going to summer camp, she would send me to Brazil to stay with my grandma. Like going back to Brazil was really common, especially when I was a kid. Interesting. Um, so I like speak Portuguese like like a Brazilian person. Sure. There's like no sign that I ever lived outside Brazil except that like I don't wear sandals is like really the biggest one. Like I'm serious though. Like that is how people can tell that I'm like totally a gringo because I don't wear sandals. Like never? Like you never wear sandals I or just because you're not wearing sandals most of the time? Because I don't know. I don't know. I've never been to Brazil. I don't know. The Even when I'm in Brazil, I really don't like to wear sandals because my feet just get dirty. But like in Brazil, everyone wears sandals. Like that's true, especially where I'm from. It's like. Are we talking like a cute open toe shoe or are we talking straight up just like flip flops? Like flip flops, like Havaianas. Oh. Yeah. What are they called? Havaianas, like the brand oh, okay. of like rubber flip flops that is like the most popular Brazilian brand on earth, I imagine, other than like maybe the soccer jersey. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you on that aesthetic impulse to not wear fucking flip-flops. I, I mean, I also think it's, there's something cute and charming about like wearing flip-flops, but it's just, it makes my feet really dirty. And also I wear pants in the summer, which to like, when I go to Brazil, I'm wearing pants. People are like, that's how I know. Like you're wearing like work pants. Like I'll wear like Dickies, you know? And they'll yeah. be like, what are you doing? It's like so hot outside. I'm like, yeah, I'm from Florida. It's hot there too, but we still wear pants, <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's a there's like a Cameron line from a later Cameron and Vado mm-hmm. song from like 2006 or whatever that was like Harlem people don't wear sandals with jeans. <laughs> I played that song for Becca and she was like, I think that's like... Um, that's everyone. Well, also, like, but there's so many, like, West Africans living in Harlem that probably do wear sandals with jeans. Yeah. You're like, this is false. Yeah. She's just like, I just don't think that's accurate. Um, but anyway, I was like, as a New Yorker and, like, a dickhead and someone who takes most of my style is from Cameron, um, as evidenced by all the tracksuits I own and my, like, powder pink wardrobe, I um, am all about taking a hard stance against wearing flip-flops and long pants. <laughs> I think 100%. But anyway, yeah, because I went to Brazil so much as a kid, I like have a regional accent from where I'm from and stuff and like grew up a lot with my grandma. And I think it's like my experience as an immigrant to the United States is a little different than, um, for example, like people whose parents were immigrants Mm -hmm. who feel like a really big disconnection from where they're from or like feel like they have like no uh real cultural attachment outside of like the american hyphen attachment okay where i feel like super super connected to like brazilian culture because i like lived among it a lot in my life yeah um though i completely also understand myself as an american in a lot of ways like i know when i go to brazil like they think of me as an american sure because like yeah like i don't wear sandals things like that you know um yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And there's like a lot of like things like slangs that teenagers would use that I'd be really late on. Uh-huh. Like I would like learn slang only every like other year that I'd go back. And I had a lot of friends there when I was growing up and I still do. Like this summer, I haven't seen one of my friends since I was like 
18 maybe because they moved to Portugal and then I stopped going as much um, to Brazil. But this summer when I went to Portugal, I happened to be there the same time as her wedding. So I went to one of my childhood best friend's wedding and um, I had another moment of being like, I'm so out of touch with like whatever it is, like the cultural awareness of like what people under 40 are doing like in Brazilian culture, you know? Yeah. Um, But anyway, yeah. Um, I went back to Brazil a lot when I was a kid. And then after my grandma died when I was 12, that's when we probably stopped going as much. But my mom's like best friends are her siblings. Mm -hmm. So it still was like, she would try to go as much as we could. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier that your immigration status was like uh like you were undocumented for a long time yeah well not for a long time but for a few years just there's like an interim period yeah so from like a visa expiring until until a green card was okay issued um so i that that explains my question of how were you traveling back and forth so much yeah uh that makes a lot of sense um so you started living here when you were seven you start going to school in broward county yeah you're like hanging around with kids um what is your, this, I mean, this this radio program is about punk and punk cultural production primarily. Yeah. Um, so like, what is your, what is your early experiences with, with punk in yeah. Broward County? It's funny because I think I have a pretty unique experience, at least for someone my age, where like, I think a lot of people have the experience of like finding out what punk is and then like going to shows and then like seeking out shows from like finding out what it is through like either tv or like the internet or something yeah um but pretty much when i was like around the age of 12 i like had friends in my neighborhood um who were skaters Mm -hmm. and then like their friends who were skaters would come and stay at this one kid's house this kid michael thacker who was like he, he like lived with his mom and his older sister but his mom was like never home for some reason. So it became like a total hangout house, you know? Yeah. Um, and when I look back to like my early teens, especially, there's a lot of moments that are like hilariously like a Harmony Korean movie. Sure. Like it's funny because I, w- I didn't think about it until I was talking to my friend Steven um, about how I had my septum pierced when I was 12 in a mall bathroom by my friend Brennan, who actually is like, amazing and i'm not sure where brennan is now i probably haven't spoken to them in like three years or something but brennan was like the first person i knew who was openly non-binary and they're non-binary from when they were like 13 and they were just so cool and like i don't know they were always giving people free body mods and like just amazing person but wow. Brennan pierced my septum in a mall bathroom when I was 12 at the bathroom of the Boca Town Center Mall. And um, and when I told my friend Steven about that, because later it resulted in I went to Publix and Publix used to give you free cookies if you were like 12 and under. Uh-huh. And the lady at Publix wouldn't give me a free cookie because she didn't believe that I was 12 because I had a septum piercing. <laughs> um, Logical. Yeah. I'm like, fine. Okay, I'll give it to you that. But... Uh, my friend Steve was like, what was your life? Like a Harmony Korean movie? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. Like, it's like so terribly tacky, but also like funny. No, I think that's fucking beautiful. Yeah. It's a memory I cherish a lot, especially because like 
there's a lot of people when you're young that are like kind of awful and you don't realize it until you're older. But mm -hmm. Brendan is just someone who I'm just so thankful to have known when I was young. Yeah. Um, I can't even imagine having had, we were talking a lot about like micro generations and differences or yeah. whatever in the like, and it's not even a micro generation. Like we're, there's 15 years age difference between us. Um, I cannot even imagine what it would have been like to know about uh, there being more than two genders when I was 13. Like, yeah. I mean, I also think I was pretty lucky in a way where like communities around me, like at an early age, I had a friend who transitioned and like she was always super open and like vocal about her experience, you know, yeah. and like, I don't know, it just felt like something really normal in my life which I'm lucky because as I got older, I like met people who are like, yeah, I never met a trans person until I was 23 or something. And I'm like, first of all, no, you probably have. Like, you're like well, right. crazy. Yeah, they just didn't tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because they don't trust you. Exactly. Because you're fucking weird. Um, but like, yeah, I, I didn't realize how like special it was to also be in like a greater community of young teenagers who like, all had a lot of different perspectives and like were all really honest about themselves um yeah interesting but yeah and so this kid michael thacker his friends were skaters and they were like they weren't that much older than me i was probably 12 and like the oldest person there was probably like 17. that's a big difference that's a big difference when you're like young yeah. yeah you know um but most of them were probably like 14 15. sure um but through them there was a venue that existed in the place I lived in, Pompano, called Solid Sound Studios. And they used to do, like, a $5 show on Fridays that was, like, local bands. And there'd be, like, a straight-edge punk band and a ska band and, like, a beat-down bordering band. You know, it was just, like... I'm so glad that didn't end. Yeah, I mean, apparently it's, like, not Ruby. that... Good girl. Good girl. Hey, Ruby, come here. Hey, good girl. Yeah, it's okay. Um, but, yeah. Uh, so, Solid Sound Studios had those mixed bill shows, which I guess are, like, like now I don't know if they exist still. Like, or maybe it's, like, only if you're 12, you know that they exist, you know? Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say was I think, I think some of the shows that I went to as, like, a 13 to 16-year-old or whatever were that kind of genre bending. Yeah. Not genre bending, just, like, genre... Um, melting like yeah you're all the borders teenagers. don't exist yeah you're just a teen and like everyone is wearing suspenders for some reason <laughs> um but like i thought those shows stopped happening but i think i just grew out of knowing about them like they, exactly. i think every generation has their ska ska band plays with a beatdown band yeah uh scene or whatever or i hope they still do you know yeah also through that i was like lucky there's these two people who booked shows under breakfast for dinner productions um that's a thing that comes from i feel like comes from hardcore yeah is that calling because i had a thing that i called something productions yeah but like calling your booking shows something productions, productions yeah is like i love it it's so corny it was really cool and it was this person violet and this girl callie and they were it's funny because now I don't know any teenagers at book shows, but they were both like, like Callie was probably 15 and Violet was probably like 
16. Yeah. And they were who, like, booked a lot of shows, and I was just like... Were they booking other teens, or were they booking, like... Yeah, like, other teen bands. And cool. It was just, like, they were both straight edge, and Callie was vegetarian, and uh, Violet was vegan. And, uh, but they are also, like, I don't know, they are just cool. I looked up to them a lot, for sure, and I became really good friends with Violet later on. Like, I think, probably when I was, like, 13, I became pretty good friends with Violet, um, and she had a lot to do with, like, my early developmental stuff. Because when I was, like, 12 was when I first said I was straight edge. Whoa. Yeah. Are you still straight edge? Yes. Mazel tov. Yeah, I mean, when I was, like, a little bit younger than 12, like, the first time I realized my friends smoke weed was probably when I was, like, 10, 11. Yeah. Um, and I, like, ha- you know, like, when you think about why minor threat really matters to you when you're a teenager and it's because you feel like your friends want to grow up and you don't want to whoa no (laughs) i don't i i don't relate to that experience one bit but i'm very curious about it yeah i just feel like that's really what it comes down to like i mean drugs have something to do with that feeling but it's mostly or at least to me it was mostly like i realized that people around me were wanting to like do like more adult things and drugs happen to be a part of that. Yeah, of course. Um, and I really didn't want to do adult things yet. That's so interesting to situate minor threat as being about not wanting to grow up. That's exactly what I think like was really important about it for me. Whoa. Yeah. And, okay. and a lot of hardcore in general. Like a lot of hardcore is about like not wanting to be a grown up. Yeah. Um, and I think that was pretty important to me as like the more exposed I was to it, the more I like felt one with it but yeah so i was straight edge when i was 12 and because i became friends with violet me and her would like get into a lot of the same stuff together Mm -hmm. um she was 16 when you were 12 she was probably 16 yeah cool okay or maybe 15 i don't know but she was like a couple years older a couple years older high school to your middle school yeah exactly access yeah and like Um, we, like, had a, not a lot in common, but, like, we both, like, lived with our stepdads and, like, didn't have, like, really wonderful relationships with our stepdads. My stepdad was definitely not, like, an abusive person or, like, a bad person. Like, he was, we just didn't have anything common and he was super cold and, like, we weren't really family, you know? Yeah. Whereas, like, I think Violet had a lot more, like, harshness with her stepdad and, like, just general disagreements um, and it, like had a lot more negative consequences of living with her stepdad than I did with mine. For sure. Um, but she also had a lot more control in terms of like her room was her room and it was like decorated how she wanted. And she was like one of the first people I knew who had like a really cool room. Yeah. You know, like when you go to like someone's house when you're a teenager and they have like posters and like cutouts and stuff. And oh, you're like, yeah. damn, this room is sick. Oh, yeah. Um, But I always felt like I wasn't allowed to decorate my room growing up because me and my mom lived in her boyfriend's apartment. Mm -hmm. So there was, like, my mom was always really careful about, like, damaging stuff or, like, overstepping boundaries or, like, she was scared to do those kind of things. Sure. Um, So I never had, like, a cool room until I moved out. Wow. Um, Yeah, I remember the day that I was, like... 
oh, I'm going to cut out this picture of Tim and Lars from the cover of Spin and tape it to my wall, and I'm not going <laughs> to ask my parents first. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I can't imagine not having the opportunity to, like, do that kind of self-fashioning. Yeah, I think from a young age, too, I realized I was in a house of someone else's and not my own house, um, which led to, like, me, like, going out a lot from from a really young age. Yeah. And I think my mom also understood that, like, whenever we talk about it now, because since then my mom's boyfriend has died, and, like, I think now she does a lot of reckoning, and she feels, like, really guilty about stuff, but I'm always like, Mom, like, you shouldn't feel guilty because going out a lot when I was really young made me like the person I am now, which I'm really thankful for. Right. You know, and I think she knew like, I don't want to keep you in the house where you feel like really trapped and like there's not like potential to do stuff. Where if I went out, I was like always with people and like always like learning new things. Like I learned how to ride the bus when I was like super young, which feels like not a lot of people in Florida get to do that. That's so funny because I was just going to say, I feel like everyone I know that's from Miami started riding the bus at a crazy young age. Really? But it's like, it's just also like other cool weirdo punk women that had strange home lives. Yeah. So like Christy Road, who I don't know had a strange home life actually. Her parents are delightful. Mm-hmm. Um, Caroline Paquita and then Ivy. I don't know if you know Ivy. Um, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, all of them have told me stories about being in Miami. Ivy and Caroline met on the bus. Oh, wow. Like, they all have stories about Miami public transit that I feel like I I think about Miami and I think about buses. Wow. And it's very particular to the people that I know that are from there. Yeah. I mean, if I was to take... I took the bus to the tri-rail to take the train to Miami mm-hmm. because taking the bus to Miami would have been like... Because the buses don't go on the highway. Yeah, so it would have taken, like, fucking forever. It would have just taken a really long time, even though technically, like, I lived close to 95, and it would only take me, like, 40 minutes to get to Churchill's. Right. It's, like, not that far. Yeah. Because everything in Florida takes, like, between 30 to 40 minutes to get to. It's just how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, like, the way I would do it, and because the trial only were, like, passes by my stop once an hour, it was, like, a two-hour ordeal to get to Miami or to get to anywhere. Yeah. Um, wow. But, yeah, I learned how to ride the bus at a really young age, which, like, I really, I'm really thankful for. Um, but, yeah, a lot of my early life as, like, a hardcore person came from these weird mixed genre shows and also just being, like, wanting to get out the house. So I would just get out the house as much as I could. Right. Um and hang out with like whoever I could. Yeah. Um, and it uh, actually another really funny in memory I have of like a Harmy Corinne-esque like movie scene uh-huh. was when uh, I was like 13 and I was at Michael Thacker's house with all my friends and we were watching the movie Spun. Have the, you seen like, that movie? Um, Katie Holmes movie? I don't know who's in it. The lady from Dawson's Creek, and she—it's about like um, ravers that deal speed. It's uh, it's not about ravers. I think it's like it might take place in Florida. Yeah. But yeah, it's about speed, and like it's like 
women and a man and like they're like kind of fucked up relationship if i remember correctly it's all like off like this memory yeah and there's like a scene where like he like ties this woman to a bed and like leaves her there for a long time and she's like pissed at him sure but like and it all is like filmed like super crazy okay uh but i remember being like 13 and watching this movie with my friends and we're all just sitting there and like everyone's like smoking cigarettes indoors you know yeah 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 and i'm just like whoa like this is so weird <laughs> But in retrospective, like, that's absolutely, like, one of those movie scenes where you have, like, these children, yeah. like, watching, like, a fucked up movie and then, like, being like, yeah, sick. <laughs> yeah, I think about, I used to go to the bodega across the street from ABC No Rio and uh-huh. buy a 40 Yeah. when I was 14. And I look at pictures of myself now when I was 14 and it's like, I looked like a child. <laughs> I looked like a fucking child and I was just like, slapping my dollar down on the counter to buy a hurricane 40 and be like and give me that penny back for that change yeah because <laughs> 98 more of those and i got another 40 coming you know <laughs> and it's just like yeah i can't total uh kids shit yeah total harmony corinne absolutely uh childhood zone um but yeah uh and then there was a venue that opened when I was probably like, or no, it had been open for a while, but it didn't come into my existence until I was probably like 14, which yeah. was when I was in eighth grade, um, called the Talent Farm. And that was like where hardcore shows happened. The Talent Farm? The Talent Farm. What a name. And then like through me and the people I was friends with at that time, like it started like really being like the place I would go to. Yeah. It was really hard to get to there, but one of my friends who lived in Boca would always pick me up from middle school and drive me down. To the city to go to the talent farm. It wasn't in the city. It was in oh. Miami. It was like in South Broward, Southwest Broward. Okay. Um, but she went to high school kind of close to where I went to middle school. Um, sick. Yeah. So the talent farm is when you get into like a cohesive hardcore scene? Yeah. It's when I like understood like myself as like not just someone who like will like any like because before i think it was just whatever was seemed like i would like i would just intake you know yeah um where i think when i started going to the talent farm it was like a lot more like touring hardcore bands would come and so i like understood maybe that like a scene in the world existed at large yeah what year is this that we're talking about now 2010 was when I was in eighth grade. Whoa. Um, And that was probably like my first year of like totally understanding myself like in a scene in the world at large. That's why, A, that's wild. That's wildly young, I feel like, to be like, I am an active, I guess like I felt like that in eighth grade actually, no. Yeah. It's not that young. Um, I think I hear people, I don't know what I'm thinking. Anyway, that's cool. Um. What are the touring hardcore bands that are coming to Broward County in 2010? Trapped Under Ice. Uh, okay. That was probably like my first like really memorable like big show where there was like a ton of people at this yeah. show, you know? Yeah. Um, Whoa. To the point where I even remember what I was wearing. What were you wearing? I, I remember what I was wearing to so many important shows in my youth. Well, the funniest thing to me is that the haircut I have now is the exact haircut I had when I was in eighth grade. Sometimes you're onto something and you don't realize it. <laughs> but it's like so funny because I had like a really similar hair pattern where I had this haircut and then 
towards the end of eighth grade, I cut one side really short and had like one long slide, one long side. Uh huh. And it was like before I had this, it was like really, really short. Like I looked super androgynous when I was in seventh grade. Like had right. super short hair and wore like basketball shorts and raglan shirts, you know. Uh, but I realized that I carry out those hair patterns like now, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, I'm destined to repeat my future. But I remember at the Trapped Under Ice show, I had this haircut. Uh-huh. The same one that I'm looking at Same currently. one. I love it. I had, like, thick black glasses. Nice. Uh, a nose hoop. And, yeah, like a nose hoop. Yes. And uh, I was wearing, like, denim shorts that are probably, like, very of the time Forever 21 fashion. Okay. Uh, probably, like, some type of Vans. Yeah. authentic going on and uh an earth crisis hoodie even though it was like probably kind of warm out but when you're in florida like anything below 90 degrees is hoodie weather so. oh i'm well aware yeah yeah um wow and i remember because this kid that i later became friends with uh michael robinson was like he saw me at the show was like oh i like your hoodie and then like a few months later we became friends but yeah he played in a band with my friend joey and my friend julio who i'm still friends with um called super mutant that was like like my friends group version of like the power violence band you know oh yeah so important yeah and they were both really cool and they I, they still are really cool people um but i think joey and julio both like had a lot to do with like my musical growth and development in ways that they might not even realize now but their band covered despise you when we were young and i would sing the lady parts on despise you songs cool but they were like my friends at the time they're like the closest people i had at the time who also liked like despise you or you know anything like that yeah then when we were 16 me and joey went to go see black flag reunion on tour together wow yeah wow what was that like it was pretty bad. Yeah. But it was really fun. Um, it just seems so bizarre. I didn't witness any of that. St- I know I know a couple people that went to some of those shows, but I didn't. I just kept my distance. Yeah. I mean, you're totally fine keeping your distance. It was not good. The sound at the place was also not good. It was at this place in Miami called Grand Central. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of chaotic. It was like definitely... I feel like we were maybe the youngest people there, which is a weird realization when you're 16 and you're at like this place and you're like, oh, are we the youngest people at like a Black Flag reunion? Yeah. I went to see Joey Ramone and Ronnie Spector from the Ronettes Mm -hmm. sing, do duets of Christmas songs together when I was 15. Oh, I heard you talk about this on a recent interview. I did talk about it on a recent interview with my best friend Juan and he and I were definitely the the only people under... 30 at that show maybe yeah and i definitely was like uh this rules and juan was like we're in the wrong place (laughs) you know but i was like i always like i wanted to be the like precocious youngest person in the room i liked that feeling yeah um it was interesting but yeah i think i i like love black flag i'm especially i'm like a my war person (laughs) <laughs> cool like i love my war sure and funny enough when i was like 15 i like tried to learn bass and someone let me borrow their bass and the only 
music that I knew well enough or that like I understood even a little bit of my brain that I could find tabs for online was uh my war songs yeah so I learned how to like play bass quote unquote through like looking at the my war tabs online and that's like the only thing I still know how to play <laughs> wow um this I guess being a my war person is a good segue into something we talked about in the car that I was interested in which is that you told me that you don't like music because of how it sounds. Well, I guess to some degree I do like how it sounds, but I don't know if that's really important to me. Uh-huh. I think maybe now a little more. Or like now when I like listen to things that aren't um, like punk or hardcore, I trust my intuition a little bit more with what I like. But I also don't really think I have refined taste, uh-huh. especially in hardcore and punk. Okay. Um, and I think what matters a lot to me is like aesthetics and ethos and like the overall vibe, you know? Yeah. <laughs> the vibe of the band becomes like way more crucial to like how I understand it versus how it sounds. I think I, I mean, I think that I, sometimes something just undeniably sounds good, whether I want to like it for the vibe or the ethos or not. Mm-hmm. But I think I am, I am, I was so interested in, when you said that in the car in like such a flippant way, because I feel like. That is a thing that in um, circles that I have been in, like historically in my life, people would be like, <gasps> like really clutch their pearls and be like, no, 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 that's like, that is like, um, I feel that, but it it seems like very bold to admit. No, that. I think yeah, I think a lot of I mean? people are like scared of that realization. Yeah, and I also think a lot of people are scared. To think that taste doesn't ma- like say anything about you, really. Right. Like I don't really think having bad taste in music is a sign of my character, and so I'm like fine with like admitting if I think a band that might not be like cool, I don't think they're bad. Yeah. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Like, for I, I'm not gonna name names, but there's one band that's like kind of like a beatdown band. And a lot of my friends will be like, they're so bad. But like, I'll straight up be like, they're not that bad. Right. They're like, not cool. <laughs> and like, I'm probably not going to listen to them because I don't need to listen to something else like this. Like, I have like a million other versions of bands like this that I already like, yeah, under like, like, and like, will engage with more. But like, I think saying they're bad just feels like a drastic thing to say. Like, they're not like particularly terrible to me. Um, but yeah, I think also because I work at a record store, which is like where people might like push a lot of their views of like what it means to like have good taste or something and yeah. like refine your like musical, like, you know, I'm like, that doesn't really matter to me at all. And I also don't like, I'm not like a music fan. I say this a lot because like, I'm not someone who will just listen to everything for like just to check it out. Um, and I don't fully engage with all music. And so it's like, I just understand that how, how I like something is different than how a lot of people who are like connoisseurs of something would like something. What do you mean? Like, I think like a lot of my friends and like people who I work with and people who shop at where I work will like, fully engage with all music they come across like a lot of my friends will just check out every new band 
Yeah. Um, who has the time for that? I don't know. They work, they work in record. Yeah. They work in a record store. So, so it's like what we do. You that's know? who has the time for that. Yeah. But a lot of the times, like I like don't have like a patience to listen to new music. Yeah. And if I'm not actually listening, then there's no point of checking it out to me. When you say if you're not actually listening, you mean like if it's on and you're hearing it, but you're not paying attention. You're not like actively kind of interacting with it. Yeah. Most music that plays at the store goes in one year and out the other to me. Right. Okay. But I'm just like really aware of that. I think to a lot of people, it goes in one year out the other, but they like want to convince themselves that they're like actively paying attention and can have a really strong judgment on whether they like it or don't like it. And you think, who cares? Yeah, (laughs) I do think who cares? (laughs) Wow. Wow. How did you get a job at a record store with that attitude? I love that. Um, nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Cool. Okay. that's the only way you get a job at a record store, well, yeah, realistically. That's how anyone gets any job at, at really. Yeah, That's exactly. how anyone gets any job. Um, it's okay, big boy. Oh. Um, wow, that is so... See, I think... I think that's part of... That's part of what makes demystification so interesting, maybe, is mm. that, like, um... What I was talking about earlier with this, like, um, the, like, sort of holistic approach to subculture that you have, where it's like, mm-hmm. is that a Discogs water bottle? Oh, it's my Discogs sticker. <laughs> <laughs> In case you wondered. Yeah. It's very funny <laughs> that you are telling me that you don't care about what music sounds like. I don't. And then you're drinking out of a Discogs water bottle. Um, we all have one. Yeah. I mean, all all people, I think, in some way, spiritually, have a Discogs water bottle. <laughs> That's um, what I say when I when I say we all have one. I mean, yeah, no. all t- kids of God on the earth. Yeah, all of us. Um, no, but like I think so. The thing about de- demystification that really struck me the first time I got a copy, mm-hmm. I saw it online. The cover is fucking incredible. I love good nails. Thank you. And so, I was like. I'm very curious. Maybe I can use my cultural capital as a famous zine maker to get a copy of this zine for free. <laughs> and so I was just like, hey, what's up? Can I get the zine? I'm going to review it in my newsletter. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Here's what it is, blah, blah, blah. And Ambrose was super receptive and mailed me the copy. And I was fucking blown away. And the thing about it that I find so, that I found so ch- charming is, um, I recently had a conversation with Becca where she thinks of referring to art as charming, as pejorative and like mm-hmm. sort of dismissive, mm-hmm. which I get. But I think being charming is the best thing anyone in the world can be. And so when I say it, I don't mean it like that, but I'll try to use more precise language. Um, what what I found so um, completely just like um, completely engaging and um different than a lot of zines that i had read before was that it's you know it's a hardcore zine Mm -hmm. but it takes this um really holistic look at hardcore culture Mm -hmm. and so it's not you get a lot of hardcore zines and it's like um it's like uh some photos and then some show reviews and then like a play-by-play of the lord ezek uh fucking um 
what's his name? Uh, Harley Beef or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's like, yeah. and then like, uh, you know, Beatdown Fest uh, in uh, Tallahassee. Beatdown Fest 15 was crazy. Um, a bunch of dudes played and then they all wore basketball jerseys or whatever. I'm like, here's the thing and blah, blah, blah. And like, sometimes it's charming and sometimes mm-hmm. it's not. And I have been uh, adjacent to or a spectator of hardcore at best yeah. for my whole life. It's not like a scene that I feel is vital to me yeah and never has been yeah i remember in the review of demystification in life harvester you were like it made me interested in two things i never thought i'd care about nikes and straight edge hardcore (laughs) yeah for real because it's not just that i thought i'd never care about them it's that you actively thought they were lame (laughs) it's lame is no lame is not um it is not um there's not enough conflict in the word lame (laughs) To describe how I felt about yeah. those things. And it's because of the moment that I grew up, the moment in punk that I grew up where mm-hmm. in the, in the late nineties in, um, you know, I'm from the suburbs, but like in New York City and the surrounding suburbs where, um, I definitely identified the most with like sort of peace punk, mm-hmm. uh, like nihilist, um, uh, like sort of crust lord hate the government shit. Totally. But I definitely, I, de- I did have like, um, some street aesthetically, I had some street punk tendencies. Like I had a mohawk and a charged out leather and stuff, and I was into those the casualties and shit like that. But like the straight edge people were our enemies for so many reasons. One, because there was literally roving bands of them beating people up. Totally. And that sucked. That absolutely sucks. And two, because their politics were so stupid. They were like anti-abortion. They didn't care about sweatshop labor. Yeah. Like, there was all this stuff where I was like, this is a, even as a kid who I was like, the only way I can oppose society is to be useless to society or whatever, mm-hmm. um, which is like a dumb attitude, frankly, but like, whatever, like getting, blacking out and throwing a bottle through the window of a Starbucks is like, um, I think, I, I'm sympathetic to in a way that I'm not sympathetic to, because uh, I, participated in it yeah um in a way that i'm less sympathetic to like um uh like wearing nikes and abstaining from things yeah and so and like and i and i and i cut my chops as a protester and politically active young person protesting nike specifically Mm -hmm. um so it's like there were these really it felt really close to home and it felt really particular to my moment of like my my punk genesis to be like I am, I am interested in these things in a way that I never have been before, mm-hmm. um, and it, I think it speaks to the the ways that you guys make a zine that really I, it really something that I've liked about hardcore is that I think all of punk is about ephemera and commodities, but I think like anarchist leaning parts of punk have tried to be like um, coquettish about that the creation of commodities and the desire to have cool or beautiful objects absolutely and i feel like hardcore has never been shy about commodity fetishism in a way that i'm really into like and i'm yeah i admire yeah right like hardcore is and like so you can have in your zine an oral history of the air max whatever the fuck i think it's an ugly ass sneaker i saw so many pictures of it i was like that thing is ugly like this 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 is what everyone cares about yeah it's ugly but like, 
that you can have an oral history of the Air Max 94 or whatever it was. 95, 95. Colin. I'm sorry. It's I'm okay. sorry. I in almost the, said 93. In, in the Life Harvester review, you say the wrong Air Max. <laughs> Which is really funny to us because we're just like, did you even read the thing? It's not but on like, purpose. I, I just have a purpose. mental block. I, just, I know it's just like, you couldn't possibly care. So for you to even acknowledge that there's an air max, it's like I'm, enough of like a remarkable, you know. No, no, no. That I mean, that's just bad reviewing on my part. Like I should have just picked up the zine. Um, <laughs> I really like that you said the wrong one personally. Thank you. I, I'm glad that I like that you like it. Um, but... Uh, it is, it is something that I, we were also talking about like minutia and be, earlier before this interview and mm-hmm. like interest in minutia as a way to kind of gatekeep or whatever. And then the difference that you articulated was that like, um, that you had like, maybe you hadn't gendered it, but you had said that like some of the people that you work with had gendered yeah. it was like that like, a masculine interest in minutia is about just rattling off facts and having like a like a quiz show back and forth where you're just talking facts. Uh-huh. Whereas a like more feminine um, interest in minutia is a, is about like building an emotional narrative around the minutia. Is that yeah. accurate? Or for me at least, yeah. yeah. Because I do care about minutia. I just think when things are a little too sterile, it's hard for me to be engaged in. It starts to feel like math or like sociology, um, which aren't that interesting to me. But I am interested in like hearing just people's experience. Right. And so (laughs) the thing with the Air Max um, 99s was that uh, it is like these stories about like, I think the first time an Air Max was photographed in hardcore, like the fucking, it's so funny. The premise itself is just so funny. It's amazing. And then following it all the way through to a conclusion and taking it seriously, it's such a cool thing to do. And I have to give complete and total credit to Crucial John for that one. Yeah. Also, for everything that John does as, like, an archivist is, like, amazing to me because he takes everything he does really seriously but it's not in a way that like diminishes other things at all. It's just he thinks it's like so important to preserve his memories in this way and like the things that he experienced. So I think because like when John was young, not to put words into his mouth because, but to put words into his mouth, uh, because when he was young, like straight edge hardcore was so important to him. He like holds those memories so like near and dear and everything he puts out is just like such a true demonstration of like emotion and like nostalgia. Yeah. But it's also not like sad that it's over type feeling. It's just like, look at this. I've, it made me so happy when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, Let me share with you this thing. Exactly. Beautiful. And yeah, John is just really great at storytelling, in, in my opinion, because of that. Because he like takes his memories really seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so beyond even though, um, the, the, like, I think fashion and hardcore are like, everyone would agree that they're linked. Um, but I think in demystification, you also have like, there's like a bunch of visual artists Mm -hmm. that are interviewed. There's like, um, the deep dives about fashion are also fascinating. Like the, um, different camo. 
oh. thing is is just like such a cool little piece. Like it's a really good and it's a really good use of oh we're gonna print a color magazine. Yeah. What can we do with this as a medium that cannot be done in a black and white zine? You know, like and and that also seems to go for the visual artist component too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. You said that you're you did the interviews with the two visual artists in the last issue, right? Are yeah. you are you mostly responsible for bringing in the like um, art world component into the zine, or is that a shared? Um, I would say so because I do engage in like visual art. Yeah, you're an artist a yourself. Lot. Yeah, I'm an artist, and like I get a lot of pleasure and just general fun from like going to shows and like seeing people's work and. Um, it's really inspiring to me and it almost feels like the same as when you listen to a band that makes you feel really good for the first time Yeah, and makes you feel really understood for the first time. I feel that a lot about artists as well, like visual artists as well. Yeah. Um, and particularly people who work in video, like video art is one of my favorite mediums. And um, like I said, I have bad aesthetics, which is also kind of funny because I think people assume that artists have really strong aesthetics. Um but visual art feels like i or or sorry video art feels like i understand people's perspective through like the three channels of like text visual representative and sound uh-huh. and so i'm getting this like really strong composition of like what they want to convey to me and like our communication just seems really clear yeah whereas like i have a lot of a harder time being interested in paintings um, and drawings and prints because I, not like being interested because I think they're boring at all, but because I feel sometimes like I don't understand them. Interesting. I also think this has a lot to do with when I was a teenager, I didn't have art classes. Yeah. Um, and I never thought of myself as an artist, even though I made a lot of things. Uh, but I never came to understand that until I went to college and sort of actually my first class was video art and I understood a little bit more how like most people just understand things through visual culture and not through like art necessarily. What is the distinction you're making between visual culture and art? Um, well, like like art in parentheses, like an art world mm. that exists where like people go see paintings and like go to galleries yeah where like most people don't do that oh sure 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 you know uh including like teenage me yeah and visual culture as more of like did you go to museums when you were a teenager no not at all um like every once in a while because i like understood that i had an interest in art but like probably as much as i could like probably three times when i was a teenager i went to a museum wow um also because i lived far from museums yeah there's not that many in florida and because I thought like a lot of things are just beyond me understanding. Yeah, there's something I I think I want to return to that we also like I return to is it's new to this conversation. But you said something about um like no one cared what you had to say when you were young. Yeah, is that and now I'm maybe kind of forgetting. But I think I wasn't sure if what you meant was that um or you didn't have anything to say. It felt like. I couldn't tell if you were talking about like you having no agency in the world as a young person or if you were talking about like that no one was lis- like actively listening to you. I definitely think both. Well, <laughs> let Fuck. me describe uh, 
what I think about visual culture first. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Because visual culture to me is like what guides a lot of my art making and what informs a lot of how I like art to this day. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, I want to hear about this. by visual culture, I mean like TV yeah. at large. Yeah. Uh, ads. Like on the side of the bus? Yeah, ads uh-huh. on the side of the bus, ads on like TVs, whatever, zines. Yeah. Like cartoons. Right. And like general album art. Like arts for like records they're like show flyers yeah that type of thing that i associate a lot more with like there's this practical thing that's just going on around me and it's not like it doesn't feel like there's just like something i have to understand in order to get this does that make sense yeah so you think that with fine art there Um, there is a barrier to understanding it no, not always, but I definitely think when I was younger, I felt you like felt that there was. personally like there was a barrier. Um, I also think that has a lot to do with like confidence and like the insecurities you project into the world. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's like the world created this so I couldn't understand it, you know? Right. Um, but the like, yeah, visual culture at large has informed a lot of how I understand things. There's this like I interned at a library my last year of school at the library for the National Museum of Women in the Arts. And there was a book that they had there called The Feminism and Visual Culture Reader. And it's like fucking amazing. I bought one of my old professors a copy because I was like, you need this, like you would love it. And one of the first articles, I wish I could remember who wrote it, but she was talking about uh, how she was like a feminist media literacy teacher. Mm -hmm. And she was trying to understand why when she showed students an ad and asked them to explain why it was or wasn't feminist, they could easily do so. Like, they could easily be like, this ad isn't feminist because of, like, this interaction or blah, 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 because we had this sort of cultural training for, like, to understand what ads were. Yeah. Um, but when she showed students a painting and was like, explain why this is or isn't feminist, students, like, felt like they had no reference point to, like, understand what could or could not be feminist about it. There's, like, an issue of legibility. Yeah. And, like, I just thought that was a really, like, condensed way to explain of, like, a lot of how I felt when I was, like, between the ages of, like, 17 to 21. Sure. I felt a lot of, like, this, like, hesitancy to, like, project myself onto something that I didn't have, like, a a history of or, like, a full understanding of. Whereas I did feel like this understanding of ads or like something like that. Sure. And. Huh. This this might be totally I might be just like pulling a strand that's not there. Yeah. But do you think the the sense of like. Um, the like. Uh, kind of like being a guest in someone else's house mm. or whatever that you talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And also the like sort of more. Uh, metaphorical guest in someone else's house of like having insecure like a uh, citizenship and documentation stuff mm-hmm. here or whatever was like a way to uh, like created like a fundamental sense of like you do not get to assert yourself like you have to kind of play it cool or like keep it low because mm-hmm. you can't draw too much attention or whatever um honestly not really. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I don't, I don't feel that. I do feel like there's a lot of things that come with like precarious like citizenship statuses that yeah. like I have like, for example, when illegal things are happening, I'm way more anxious than a lot of my other friends. Sure. And it's not because I like respect the law because I don't, <laughs> but it's like because I have like this inherent like fear of being like, oh, if something happens, like something could happen to me that doesn't always happen to everyone else. Right. Which is, you know, like that's for a lot of different marginalized people, not just like people with like precarious uh, citizenship statuses. Of course. Um, but like, I do think like little things like that carry over and like a lot of like classed things that come with like living with someone who like you feel indebted to because they let you live there. Yeah. Um, or like, I would never have roommates. I mean, now it's a little different because I have a really chill roommate scenario now. But when I first started living alone, I would never use something of my roommates without asking them or like I would even be scared to ask them to use like a simple thing and rather just go and get my own because of this fear of like imposing on yeah. someone else's space, even though we like share the space and we both pay rent, you know? Right. Um. I think like, yeah, really subtle things like that Yeah, carry over, but... But the ways that I'm trying to like draw some grand conclusion about art making practice or whatever, that's... Yeah, that's maybe hokum. not. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, I think my art making like, or like insecurities about like who gets to be and who doesn't get to be an artist probably come more from like general state of anti-intellectualism of Florida. Um, sure. That I grew up in. And so I grew up super like, I'm an idiot and I have idiot friends and yeah. we like idiot music together and that's it. Do you watch The Good Place? Yeah. Do you feel like the represent, the Florida representation of the. Of Jason? Yeah, of Jason is, 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 uh, like... yeah. Jason's a pretty, a pretty good Florida representative. Yeah. Um, I do love that character because they're from Florida and because they are, they are so like, it's not like you're a bad person. You're just like, there's almost no hope you know yeah <laughs> and like this is the what you're dealt with you're like okay um but i definitely think that had a lot to do with it um it's like me and my friend russell who is also from florida and we grew up together and he now lives in dc and we work together and we're like still very good friends we've known each other since we were like 16 you know yeah um we always talk about this because we're like, yeah, like if you want to stay in Florida, even if you're like a like rich person in Florida, it feels like your aspiration is to like go to a state school and like like major in like hospitality and work at a hotel or something. Yeah, totally. You know, like it's like if yeah. you want to like, I don't know, be a philosopher, it feels weird. Right. And like something to be ashamed of. Because like even if you have the opportunity to like quote-unquote like ascend in class or something it's like you should use that to like get money and not to like be an idiot <laughs> right not to not, not to not be an idiot yeah um, exactly for not to, not for something so impractical yeah interesting and so that you think more than anything else has an impact on this notion that like art is not for you and you need like a different set of skills to um understand art versus like the more 
constant visual culture that's all around us. Yeah, for sure. I do think, actually, I almost think the opposite of, like, your point in some ways, where I think, like, being Brazilian and being Latin American, I have a better understanding of art. Okay. That comes from my history. What's that? Because I grew up, I spent a lot of time as a kid in Brazil, and Brazil has good, like, cultural programs. Like, there's a lot of museums in the city my family's from, and, like, culture is just, like, a big part of, like, life. Like, Brazilian music is, like, celebrated in Brazil, you know, and, like, my family really values the local culture of where we're from. Um, And, like, so there's... Do you know who Tarsila do Amoral is? Uh-uh. She's a painter, like a modernist painter from Brazil. But she has like very like iconic imagery. And I remember being a kid and having a memory puzzle with her paintings on it. Mm-hmm. And like things like that were a lot more common than they were to my life in the United States. Interesting. Yeah, I guess like there are all these like cultural creation projects done as like part of the colonial project in Mm -hmm. um in like south and central and and north america um in ways that are just more explicit and like overt about like building creating a national culture or whatever that yeah i wouldn't even have considered that is um that's really fascinating I also think because my grandma was like a pretty cool person in terms of like she was like a communist and like a teacher um, and post the military dictatorship in Brazil she like did a lot of activism for like public education um, because she was an elementary school teacher yeah Uh, so she like values things like kids plays you know, like, going to see kids' plays. Yeah. Where, like, in the United States, I don't think I've ever even heard of, like, a kids' play existing. You mean, like... Like, a place you go to to watch plays meant for kids. Oh, no. I've only done that when there was a play at, a, like, a school play. Yeah. No, like, I mean, like, a, a yeah. theater, but where they show plays. Kid, yeah. Wow. Do you think that background and your relationship with your grandmother impacted you in the way that you felt drawn to like um subculture that was so heavily based in cultural creation and like among its participants i think so but not entirely i think like later i understood that connection yeah um because i think especially when i was a young teen it was way more important to me to just like do whatever was like against the grain you know like uh i I think i just like liked like aggressive music because it sounded aggressive yeah not because like it had anything to do with like how i i didn't think about my future sure 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 yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) um but i I think probably when i was like 16 i started to realize more like i don't like how memories of how my grandma lived and like even like a lot of things my mom did uh resonated with me and like carried a lot of what i actually value about like communication and media making and like networks of care what do you mean networks of care like networks of like how do you care for someone or like 
who do you like you like you talked about with your mom's breast cancer yeah, yeah, yeah. network it's like like you said you're like yeah i thought that punk was like the only place where people could like care for each other across like state lines without knowing each other like yeah, that or like non like non-kinship structure mm-hmm. um but i think like my mom and like her friends and like my grandma and like her like old lady church friends in brazil uh who all like sewed together like it made me realize that they inform a lot of how i also have friendships now sure if that makes sense that makes so much sense (laughs) yeah that's fantastic um we kind of got lost in the timeline which i don't think really matters sorry Um, no don't be sorry i truly it's a like it's up to me the interviewer uh, to make sure things stay on track, but be like, that's not, that's just an arbitrary, um, framework. But like, at some point we're at, cause I think we got distracted talking about your fantastic zine, but it's like, you know, you had mentioned that you made a bunch of zines as a teenager. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious what those were, wh- when you started doing that and what those were like. Yeah. So I think I put on my first zine when I was like 14, maybe 15. Uh, and it was called Bruise Violet, and it was definitely, like, like super Riot girl influenced style. I think I had just got, like, PDFs of, like, the Bikini Kill zines. Uh-huh. Um, and those zines pretty much, like, informed everything I did about zine making uh, for that's, the next few years. That's so beautiful. It was... I, I look back, and I'm really proud of them, even though they were bad. Yeah. Uh, because it was a lot of just, like, very true expression and, like, really genuine belief that, like, if I made something, my friends, at like, my friends would, like, like, read it or, like, understand it better. Yeah. And I, like, very much, like, remember also clearly things, like, I remember when I was, like, 15, probably, it was, like, the first time I probably felt comfortable saying, like, I hate men. And, like didn't feel scared to say that you know i like felt like i understood my feeling enough to be like yes this is how i feel yeah um and i remember getting into arguments with like my friends at show sometimes being like if you hate men then like why are you involved in this or like stop being friends with me you know um but yeah bruce violet was my first set of zines and uh like i said they're pretty bad but I'm, i'm really happy with what they were and that i had that option for like expression like i remember one of them i printed them at my high school because i had office hour where i worked in the school office or like that was like a period of class i had and so i had really quick access to the printers and i would print them in my school printers um and i remember being really quick to print one issue because there was like like nudity on the cover or something and i was like i can't like be caught printing this because like my feminist scene is going to be considered porn right i'm going to get in trouble yeah yeah uh but like i i actually like found that memory in my mind the other day Mm -hmm. and i was like oh i really like that memory like i'm really glad that i had that moment of self-awareness to realize that like what i was doing was like bad but like it's not actually bad like it's not bad to like look at naked bodies right oh cool 
So that's the thing you do in high school. Yeah. And that was like, I did other stuff too, like, because before I had an iPhone, Mm -hmm. I like had really shitty phones and I'd always break my phones and my phones would always be dead. I was like one of those people. Sure. Um, And I also like didn't really have like really strong access to the internet, even though I did have like a Tumblr and stuff. That's an important part of the internet that I'm like, people my age did use it, but I feel like I like am like in a weird way just too a little too old for like it didn't yeah it's very important to my age group yeah like that's definitely like such a marker of time um and because the computers at my school didn't have it blocked i would just go on tumblr when i had like i had a typing class sure that was my most popular elective um and yeah i would just go on tumblr for hours and that's where i found out about like about like a lot of like feminist discourse <laughs> yeah like did, did you find those bikini kill pdfs on tumblr where did you get how did you i think someone those? i followed on tumblr had the pdfs uh-huh. and provided them to me that's wonderful yeah and i also remember there was definitely a few copies of like maybe it was like not bikini kill but it was oh god what's her name the jigsaw drummer. youth Toby? jigsaw youth it was jigsaw youth that i bought on etsy that like someone was reprinting whoa yeah wow and um maybe it was the etsy of the person i got the bikini kill pdfs from i can't remember the details of that but it was definitely yeah. from tumblr and that's so it's so that's so cool to me like toby is someone who is so important to me mm-hmm. and to my development as like a person in punk mm-hmm. and I think and I was talking to Ben Trogdon about this the other day but like because Ben Ben is much closer to Toby than I am because they lived in Olympia at the same time I mean mm-hmm. Toby's always lived in Olympia but Ben was living there um, for many years and what we were talking about was that Toby is so unselfconscious about being a fan mm-hmm. of things and so unafraid of fandom and just like really just reveling in the joys of just liking stuff mm-hmm. and and like she's also really cool yeah you know like the the like all the old like frumpies stuff from the um the grand royal the beastie boys uh promotion company uh they did a zine in the 90s that's my favorite current zine wait the grand royal zine is yes. your favorite does it still exist no I think oh. it's only five five issues. Five issues. It's so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So the, there's like that frumpy's like frumpy's skate style little section in one issue that's mm-hmm. like them talking about like who cares if you do tricks like dress like this not like this uh, whatever and it's like it's so fucking cool. Yeah. Um, God, that's and it and to me it's like Toby is like an older punk that I admire mm-hmm. and am like so lucky to know. Um, whose work I have been engaging with for, um, you know, 20-something years. Yeah, like most of your life. At this point, literally more of my life than not. Yeah. Um, But it's like, it's so cool to hear that someone who is um, 15 years younger than me also had this galvanizing moment because of the same person's work. Yeah, absolutely. That's so fucking cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Toby Vales, like, was the coolest person to me when I was young. Uh, But I also made, like, yeah, a lot of 
other zines that were like just like show pamphlets that had upcoming shows um uh-huh. and like what bands from south florida were going on tour like that type of thing yeah um and those were pretty important uh for me to make even though i was the only person that really enjoyed them i think because everyone <laughs> else had like a facebook you know right um but yeah i think it was fun to make something that made me feel like i was contributing to my scene yeah even if i like was just not you know um but yeah and so those are like mostly like the types of zines i was making when i was young or like in like high school age i would say mm-hmm. um and then you're like i gotta get out of florida yeah because of this anti-intellectualism yeah pretty much i'm gonna go to dc yeah right and then you went to college in dc yeah i went to college in dc because like i said before i went there when i was 17 and like the like yeah i just had like a relationship to dc uh based on previous understandings and Mosher's delay probably influenced a lot of that for me and when i was in high school the like, tape label Mosher's yeah, delight, yeah the tape label Mosher's delight when i was in high school uh i was probably a junior when i started this or maybe it was my i can't remember it was one of the last few years of high school i had a label that was also a tape label and i only had four releases um that's four more than i've ever put out um you know what i mean like that yeah i mean it's just like it's nothing special but it, i feel really happy that i got to have that high school experience yeah um when i put out my friends bands and like i also put out like a few zines with the label and it was called strawberry scene and strawberry scene yeah oh wow um and it was really fun like i felt like it was a really fun project of like doing stuff for my friends and also like doing a lot of things that promoted my self-expression and like i did all the art for it and stuff and yeah it just had like an aesthetic that i was like interested in exploring at that time um but yeah i think that was really important and mosher's delight was probably what made me think that i could have a label because my friends had a tape label or like they just put out or like these people i knew had a tape label and they put out like tapes are three dollars each for like young people's bands why couldn't i yeah also do that yeah it's fantastic um and then when i was moving to dc i did a really short-lived zine with crucial john who did marsha's delight Mm -hmm. and farah skyke uh who's like a photographer from dc Mm -hmm. um called strawberry dreams and it was just like yeah like women in punk stuff cool what's Um, the um what's the significance of strawberries i don't know well i think like just because when i was a teenager at the time when i was wanting to start a label i like was listening to stuff like black tambourine sure and also like strawberry switchblade and there seemed to be like this like uh like peachy aesthetic Uh uh-huh and like a like peachy sonic quality to it all yeah i can see that um that like I just think I really pulled from <laughs> and also it was like I don't know kind of tropical and cute in yeah. like Florida you know <laughs> yeah totally Jacob Berendez um, who is like um, a peer mm-hmm. and a friend of mine who is someone whose cultural output I have always admired mm-hmm. um, he did like a zine for a number of years called Mother's News mm-hmm. in um, out of Providence in Worcester um, but he has a new band called Strawberry Band. 
Oh, and I don't know what they sound like because I don't think there's a recording, but their only merch is a red pencil that has like the like imprinted text with the gold. Yeah. That says Strawberry Band. That's great merch. It's perfect. I'll show you a picture. Yeah. It's perfect merch. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so then you're in D.C., you're hanging out. Did it take you? I always found D.C. like going on tour there and stuff. I always found DC kind of an alienating city. Mm. Um, I don't think it actually is. Like, and as I've become an adult, I, it's actually just like, oh, I just knew the wrong people or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, um, did, did it take you how, I guess you already had friends there. So it didn't take you that long to like kind of connect to yeah. a hardcore scene there, did it? No, I had like a sense of like the hardcore scene. I think it was hard for me because it is really individual. Like, people don't hang out um which is a really extreme difference from florida where all we did was hang out only hanging out. in florida if you didn't hang out you were like shamed for it you know it was like hanging out is a part of like maintaining the scene so yeah um and like going to every show you had to go to every show right it doesn't matter if you don't want to go to the show you go to every show no you just have to be there yeah um but yeah, and so it was a little bit of a, a harsh difference. Like, I remember I would get really sad and lonely and like I would even cry at times because I'd be like, All right, why doesn't anyone like, why, I feel so alone. Yeah. Um, but ultimately I was really lucky to have Ambrose. Like Ambrose is undoubtedly my- Did you meet Ambrose or you already knew Ambrose? I already knew Ambrose. I met him the summer before I moved to DC um, when he was coming back from a tour and I was coming back from a tour and the shows overlapped in Jacksonville cool um and before me and ambrose met many people in my life had been like you would love ambrose you guys would get along so well um and we did like ultimately ambrose is like my best friend and like i'm really lucky to have 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 had ambrose in dc or else i would have been pretty alone um but it was also good moving to dc in a way that like i learned how to like make friends with a lot of people who weren't punk or hardcore uh-huh uh an important uh quality to develop as you get older absolutely and when i was 19 i moved to dc and like pretty much one of my second days of like ha- being a college person we had a meeting for the radio and i was i had like a radio show my first year yeah and uh me and this girl milan we saw each other and I was like, she was like, I like your outfit. I was like, I like your outfit. And Milan was really cool. Yeah, it was meant to be, but she went to high school in DC. Funny enough, she went to middle school in Broward. Whoa. So like, she like knew some people I knew, you yeah, know, like. Kind of gets it. Yeah. Um, but Milan uh, went to high school in DC. So she had like friends from there and through her, I ended up meeting a lot of other random people. Yeah. And a lot of people who now I consider, like, probably my closest friends in D.C. Outside of Ambrose are, like, other young women who, like, make scenes but weren't, like, hardcore. Yeah. It's interesting to s- see those worlds where, like, people do similar cultural creation but don't come from, don't have, like, all the damage of having been involved in punk. Totally. It made me also realize the importance of something like Rookie Magazine. Oh, big time. Where, like, I didn't know what that was until I was, like, practically an adult. Yeah. And, like, I would 
if like I have like that bitter like feeling of being like who cares if like this like model has a zine like I've had a zine too it doesn't matter it doesn't make you special but it also like that like reached so many of my now friends like and made them realize they could make zines yeah yeah and the people that were involved with it like I think um my friend Susie, who I think I was telling you about, who's like the um, Rolling Stone Latino editor. Yeah. Um, she was a rookie person. She drew, drew comics for them. Mm-hmm. And like my friend Lola, who used to do zines, who's now like um, a works at Planned Parenthood um, doing healthcare stuff, mm-hmm. um, is uh, was involved in like heavily involved in rookie. Like a, a lot of those people were like sort of New York. Um, weirdo ladies that were from the older the older folks involved in rookie are still younger than me mm-hmm. um, a little bit and like yeah definitely came from like a pretty authentic punk background or like DIY background in a way that really brought something to the table that was so cool mm-hmm. yeah that's so rad yeah and so when I, like my friend Fabiola was probably one of the first people I met I probably met her in like October 2015 right after I moved and she's still like one of my dearest friends um but she's one of those people where like i've watched her develop her zine making Uh into like how it is now and like now it's just she does a lot of activities under like her collective group called hermetic state but she'll do like lesbian movie viewing night and like we had a she had a recent one where we watched uh like nollywood movies and we also had like a book club at the beginning of the year where she like talked about Mandy Williams, who's like a writer, a black woman writer from LA who writes about like colorism in algorithms a lot. Whoa. Um, and yeah, Fabiola like hosted this book club at Drink Custody. Uh, and so many people came. It was like so many people that we didn't even know. Yeah. That it, it Every time Fabiola does something, it has the potential to grab so many people and it just like expands my community by so much. Um, but meeting Fabiola was a really big part of my life in DC and still is like. And she was not punk. No, Fabiola's yeah. not punk. No, she's That's like, great. yeah, she's like a weirdo who, uh, like, I don't think had a lot of friends growing up. And so she like made zines and was on Tumblr. Yeah, just born freaks. They got to find each other. Yeah. But she's absolutely, like, number one genius. And she's younger than me. Whoa. By a year. Cool. She's just, like, yeah, such a source of, like, inspiration and knowledge, especially when it comes to, like, organizing for people. Yeah, which is so important. And I feel like, just to circle back to demystification, because... um, we are now there chronologically, which like, I think actually it's a fault of mine that I need to, I need to know everything that got us here before I want to, like, but I, I don't know why I need to know, like, I, but I like it does, I need to hear, I want to hear it all. I'm so fascinated with like what it is. If someone makes a thing that I think is cool, I want to know every moment that led up to that, you know? No, totally. Um, That's my interviewing style as well. Yeah. Where I'm like, okay, let's start from the beginning. and. But then it's a lot of editing. Yeah. And it, it confuses some people. Like, I interviewed someone for Demystification 3 recently. And I asked them, like, 
they're an artist. Mm -hmm. And I guess I asked them more questions about like what they did when they were teenagers and like what what led them, like what they did when they were like 23, then like what they do in their art practice now, which I realized might not be like, that might not be what they want to talk about, <laughs> you know? Right. They, I'm like, oh, that might be totally like irrelevant to them for like this conversation. Um, but I realized that after the fact. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I do that all the time. And I'm like, oh, shit, I have to like understand the way this person might want me to perceive what they what we're talking about. I know, but I just want to know. <laughs> I know. Um, but it's funny enough that talking to them, I realized we had so much shit in common. And that's why I love their art. Like they're from South Florida. <laughs> uh, they also like their arts all like the way they describe what's important to their art they're like yeah like suburban tropicalia like and i was like yeah that's why i had to ask okay <laughs> yeah who's the artist uh diana lozano cool she's a sculptor oh fantastic i can't wait when's demystification three out oh man who knows we have a long ways to go a while so yeah later yeah some point in the future probably summer okay cool i have something to look forward to um What's the genesis like? So you and Ambrose, you're you meet in Jacksonville, a great town where weird stuff happens. Yeah, and then, um, and then what's up? And then you're both in DC. And then when are you like, let's do the zine? Yeah, well, for a long time, I, I did you ever read Ambrose's old zine, mm -mm. Neighborhood Life? No, but I love that name. It's amazing. Yeah, like Neighborhood Life is so well written, and Ambrose also did this really short zine about like trapped under ice to give out at their last show in like 2015 or whatever uh -huh. and it was also amazing and i just think ambrose is such a good writer that i was yeah. like begging ambrose at one point to just make a zine yeah um and around the same time that ambrose was like i have to just make a zine i was also like i have to make a zine and then he was like okay i'll make a zine if you make it with me and i was like are you sure you want to do this i only make bad zines because i was like i'm aware that ambrose only makes good zines Ambrose is like a perfectionist and I'm like not at all yeah so I was like are you sure you know like uh but we ended up go yeah he was like yes I want you to do the scene with me and then for like two years almost we just talked about it uh-huh and didn't get anything done um did I that feel like in retrospect did that two years of talking feel like it was like um it could have spun out to the zine never happening or did that two years of talking feel like you were kind of ramping up to getting it done but it needed to like it needed to sort of sit in its own juices for a while and ferment for me it felt like it was never gonna happen probably the latter for ambrose okay uh but also to like be totally fair i was like a lot more insecure about like I was insecure about disappointing Ambrose in the zine. Sure. Because I know he, like, is really particular about things and, like, only wants to, like, put out things that he feels, like, totally comfortable in. Um, yeah. So it led to a lot of, like, moments of being, being me being, like, ah, do I want to do this for demystification or, like, would that sound, like, cool or something? Yeah. The, like, it's ultimately just you're playing head games with yourself. Yeah, Ambrose exactly. Ambrose hasn't actually told you No, exactly. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't even remember how we actually got started on the first issue because it feels like just for so long we were just like, yeah, should we blah, 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 should we do this, should we do this? Or like spitballing like 
what we could possibly cover or something. Yeah. Which still feels like a lot of what we do. And it feels a little sad sometimes that we like actively feel like we have to search out punk and hardcore things to cover. Because that's not what you're um, naturally gravitating towards? Yeah, just because I feel like neither of us like listen to enough bands that we're like super excited about to the point where we want to cover them. <laughs> yeah, it's not very common. It's really, it feels harder, especially as you get older, maybe. I think that it's just like, I'm, I cannot even remember the last band that I was, that was like not someone I knew that I was like, holy shit. Yeah, and that, like, you want to cover what is also feels, like, worth covering if, like, 10 other media outlets are covering something. You're like, oh, is this even, yeah. like, worth, like, doing? Yeah, this is interesting for me to talk about, like, what you consider when, when I mean, a- obviously, as you can, as you probably were able to tell from just, like, driving to the pizzeria and back, um, I almost never listen to punk music. Mm-hmm. I listen to, like, almost only like um dance hall mm-hmm. and like uh like sex songs from the radio yeah and that's actually all i want to hear is like a romantic crooner like a, i want to listen to jeremiah and i want to listen to fucking vibes cartel or whatever and like i don't actually care about uh i heard turnstile once you yeah. know? <laughs> and like i don't I was like, oh, I, oh cool. I, I didn't care. You yeah. Know? I don't care. That, I mean, I'm I'm exaggerating. There's punk that I listen to. but Yeah. But it's like, you're like, oh. New punk, it's hard. Converse already likes this thing. Do I have to like go extra? Right. Yeah, exactly. Because there's this, there's this um, it totally pervasive element of monetization of pretty underground culture. Like, mm-hmm. and I guess I feel like an old person when I say like, once Converse is there, it's not underground culture anymore. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Do you think, is that like, am I like a fuddy-duddy with, <laughs> with 90s tendencies to say that like Converse or Vans presence? And that doesn't make, I'm not, this is not a value judgment. This is not about, you know what I mean? Like I'm not, I'm reserving, I'm not calling anyone sellouts or posers or anything no, like that. Yeah. But I think that like, if we want to distinguish between underground culture and mainstream culture Mm -hmm. we have to figure out where it's being funded no totally i mean i do agree with that a lot i think i feel a little like where i would almost always feel like why is converse here i feel i i have a little more leeway space because i also think that scenes are getting older um which i don't think are inherent like it's not inherently a bad thing that scenes are getting older, that people who play in bands are older or feel older now than they felt when I was younger. Does uh-huh. that make sense? It does. I'm Like when I was younger, I felt like everyone who played in a band that I thought was like cool and like was a big band was like 23. Yeah. Now, now I, that you're 23. Now that I'm 23, I don't know. I know like a handful of other bands of people under 25. I have... I had a similar experience, mm-hmm. which I don't think means anything necessarily, but I think like it's possible that this is just like a generational moment. Yeah. Where like, because now I feel like everyone in bands is younger. Yeah. Than they were when you were, you were growing up? When I was a teenager. Yeah. Or like, 
Maybe they're the same age as they were when I was a teenager, but they're younger than they were when I was 25. Yeah. Or whatever. Like, uh-huh. I feel like there's just this... Th- I don't know... I don't know how to describe it, but there's this thing where maybe, like, you just don't ever... The bands that are your age that are popular maybe don't seem popular in the same way hmm. or something. I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm trying to say. Well, my my thing with, like, Vans and, and Converse and stuff is, like... Yeah. Um, I think it's almost bad for underground, cult- underground culture, but for the sake of, like, I really want there to be spaces where teenagers can go and, like, meet other people and, like, get into something. I'm, like okay, if this has to exist so that teenagers, like, weird teens can, like, have their bands play or whatever. 100%. I'm like, okay, you know? Because, like, or for me, I know there's probably teenagers who play in bands. Like, in D.C., there's, like, a a bunch of new young kids who are all, like, 17, 18, who, like, go to shows or whatever. Um, But I feel like it's, like, it feels rare. Yeah. Um. And it's really important for me to preserve that space. I like think of myself as really lucky, which is funny because I know everyone always makes jokes like, ah, oh, the punk ruined my life. But I feel really lucky to have found like hardcore punk when I was like a young person because I didn't have friends at all in school. Like I had no friends in school. Yeah. And if I didn't have friends through my subculture, I would just be totally alone. Um, Right, because you were, like, kind of lonely at home. Yeah, I was totally lonely at home. I, like, didn't really have, like, escape-isms, you yeah. know? Like, I didn't read books until I was in college. I never read a book. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Oh, yeah, this is something about me that I talk about a lot, but I guess you didn't know this. I never read a book until I was in college. Do you read books now? Um, not really. Like, I'm willing to. I do read books, but I don't read fiction. Whoa. I only read nonfiction because of school, I think. So yeah. that's how I learned to read. That's wild. Yeah. What did you do? I just read so many books as a kid. I just hung out with my friends. Yeah. Um, and I watched TV. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't really have to read books for school, so I just didn't really read books. And that's what, like, when people who, like, read, like, Harry Potter or something as kids, when they call themselves idiots, I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> my, I have an idiot culture. Like, my culture is, if you read a book, like, fuck you. If you read, <laughs> like, Harry Potter. It's not just that you didn't read books it's if you read a book fuck you it's just like like what, oh wow who has the time to do that you know you gotta hang out with your friends and go to shows yeah which is like pretty funny uh because i remember when i moved to dc i i was texting one of my friends i was like i'm reading a book and eating an apple right now and they were like lol can't believe you're not looking at memes and eating mcdonald's wow Yeah, I feel like that every part of the New York punk scene that I've participated in for my entire life has always involved reading and talking about books. Yeah, I think that's for a lot of people. Yeah. Wow, but that's, that's where so I draw, like, I really want people to understand that, like... How dumb it was where you're from. Yeah, and, like, how comfortable I was in, like, being a dummy. Yeah. Which, you know, I just don't think people understand, like, especially from places in the Northeast how intellectualism like permeates like a lot of the like everyday culture yeah okay um and like 
especially in DC, it's just such a place where, like, also, like, black intellectualism spawns because of, like, Howard and stuff. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people, even if, like, your parents didn't go to college or something, have this idea of, like, history and, like, radicalism in history and, like, this admiration for it. Sure. In a way that, like, it's, I, like, I never understood, like, or, like, I understood to some degree as a teenager, but not, like, through a cultural acceptance of it, you know? Yeah. Wow. That's, that just blew my mind. Yeah. Sorry to blow your mind. With no, 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 please. Like I love that. to have my mind blown. If um, there's like a quote I could relate to like being a teenager, it's like that one Donna song that's like, I don't want to grow up well. I just want my Taco Bell. <laughs> <gasps> wow. So God. that's exactly how I felt. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's just, it's so funny because I think of that kind of attitude being so nihilistic, mm-hmm. but like, the way you talk about being a teen and like being so invested in your community and like being so invested in your friends and being so invested in like participating and creating stuff doesn't sound like nihilism to me. No, you know? it didn't really feel nihilistic. Yeah, no, it doesn't it doesn't yeah. seem like it is nihilistic. But like I just want my Taco Bell to me is like the most nihilistic thing I can imagine. Yeah. And I think part of that is also like um like from my my like my personal activist kind of childhood where like the kind of pro- I was protesting Nike, I was protesting the Gap, I was protesting mm-hmm. Disney, I was protesting PepsiCo who because of the way they treated the people that picked their tomatoes mm-hmm. uh, specifically but for many other reasons and PepsiCo owned owns Taco Bell. Yeah. And so Taco Bell was like on the trafe list for a long time. Mhm. I did not fuck with, it was real like punk purity politics bullshit where like I did not fuck with fast food of any kind. I ate a Popeye's chicken sandwich yesterday. Yeah. I, I love it. I was very much fast food all yeah. throughout teenage life. Wow. Even when I was vegan, which is why Taco Bell was my fast food. Yeah, of choice. course. Fast food, uh, Taco Bell and Pollo Tropical, the like Caribbean fast oh, food. Oh, I fucking yeah. know Pollo Tropical. Yeah. Oh, I love, I made a black bean, like the black bean bowl by accident here at my house um the choppy chop yeah i made a choppy chop yeah and i i just like becca made a sauce and i was like what does this taste like and then i was like i gotta i gotta take these beans and i'm gonna make some i'm gonna put a salad in here yeah and like you know becca's been vegan 20 years we keep like a more or less vegan household there was no chicken in it there Mm -hmm. was like some tofu or whatever but like i built myself a choppy chop and i was trying to explain to becca like the how intensely i love this combination of flavors and she was like i mean it's fine but i don't get it yeah it's it's a really funny thing because anyone who like grew up with pollo tropical like you like love it yeah it's the best it's but it's all i ate also my mom did not cook when i was growing up so it would be like she would get pollo carry out yeah from the drive-thru and that would be like what i ate for two days because it was like a, a lot of food and right. like i could break it into like two meals you know yeah fuck wow it is really good yeah um but um once again as conversations do we are we are drifting and drifting and drifting and sorry I, no don't be sorry i i don't ever say that to make you self-conscious yeah i'm ta- i'm like thinking through 
what I want to make sure we talk about. Yeah. Um, which is, so demystification comes to be, you and Ambrose talk about it for two years. You finally make the first issue. You don't really remember how, how it started. How it even got there. Um, I've only seen the second issue. Yeah. So what was the first, was the first issue similar? Was it like a full color kind yep. of thing? Same deal. Um, it seems so, such like such a grand project. Yeah. I think we didn't even, maybe Ambrose realized it, but like, we were both kind of like, yeah, like full color, like, like amazing spreads. Like I actually, the thing we fought on the most in the beginning is that Ambrose is like, we need to have like a lot of content, like meaning he wanted a lot of words. Um, and I was like, yes, but we have to have pictures to balance out the words. A lot of pictures as well. Wow. Um, because I think, and I think Ambrose thinks this too, uh, where like visual components of a story help people understand and stay stimulated in the story sometimes. Of course. Um, but that was like probably our biggest rift in the beginning was I was like, no, the pictures for this thing need to be like more visible. Yeah. Um, especially for like artist features. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes so much sense. But yeah. And like after the first one, I was really happy with it. Um, and Ambrose, I think like had a lot of things he didn't like about the first one mm -hmm. and like really like, uh, felt like he had to like express to people all the things he didn't like about the first one in order to like not feel like they could have it reflect him some way or something. Sure. I, I understand um, that impulse. But it's funny because we have, we have like demystification therapy sometimes where Beck is our therapist and me and Ambrose like, will like discuss something, but it's like, it came to a point one time where Beck is like, Ambrose, if you do a project with someone else, you can't keep talking about how bad it is because yeah. it affects them <laughs> also. Right. And like, I think I didn't even realize that that was affecting me until that moment. And I don't think Ambrose did either, but we were both like, oh yeah. <laughs> um, but is the name from the Zound song yeah. or the concept in communism? It's from the Zound song? Zound song, yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. I got into... I got into a light disagreement with someone speculating about what the name was from. No, yeah. And they were like, it is from the the Marx concept. And I was <laughs> like, no, the Zound song is from the Marx concept and the Zine is from the Zound song. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it was that many steps in the direction. Ambrose came up with the name um, also because he's like extremely picky. Yeah. And I'm not picky at all. So I was like, whatever you come up with, just fucking do it. Because like, I'm not even going to try to argue about a point a counterpoint you know yeah but happily like we both love the name sometimes not being picky tur turns into magic i taught this zine class in a mm -hmm. middle school in texas a couple years ago and ultimately i'll give you copies of all those zines actually i would love those yeah yeah ultimately um the um the three girls in the class ended up doing their own zines but mm -hmm. originally they were going to do one big zine together and they were going to call it Chicken Wings Magazine, oh which God. is so fun. It's like so engaging and funny and clever. Yeah. Um, and like sometimes just like being like a, a stone 12 year old girl who doesn't give a fuck is actually creates the most perfect content. Yeah. Um, but demystification is it's sick. It's a sick name. Thank you. Um, I'm so glad that it exists. And number three is going to be out in the summer. And... Um, 
how do you pick what we what goes in it yeah i mean it's really it's about like finding something that we can think is cool for long enough like something that we'll still think is cool in like the yeah. year that it takes to put everything to put together. an issue out wow yeah um what's I mean, the rubric like how what do you what kind of test do you put it to there's no test it's just like really about what we want to cover i think it's like harder for me sometimes because i'm scared to ask people to interview them uh-huh. which sounds funny but i'm like no i get that scared of annoying people um i'm scared of asking people i don't know to interview like i was like you know, I mean, I'm better at it than I was, but like, yeah. I was minorly apprehensive asking you, for instance, to do this because, like, what if you had said no? Yeah, exactly. Or what if you like said yes, but then like couldn't do it at the last minute, and then I felt like you didn't care? Like, yeah, that would make like there's so many. It's just like being vulnerable is hard. It's really hard, or just like I think I get scared to ask people to interview them, and like it's cool with me if they say no. Um, I don't like take it that personally, but I don't want them to like think. I, I don't know. I just don't want them to feel pressured into doing something that they don't want to do. And then, like, it doesn't come out good because, like, they didn't really want to do it. Yeah. And I also don't want to annoy someone and feel like, oh, give me all this time just so, like, you could talk to me. And, like, you know, I don't really have anything to offer you back. Right. Um, And, like, I asked last for issue two. I really wanted to interview my former professor and the, like, last... Uh, gender studies department head before I left school, Annika Simpson, because she taught a class that I took called Theories of Marriage Abolition. Uh huh. And Annika Simpson's like an amazing philosopher. Um, and the whole class was because she was writing a book about a black feminist perspective for marriage abolition. Okay. And she like pretty much used the class as like a test guide of like. How are people taking in this information? Like, yeah. How are people taking in my theory? Does it hold up? You know? Yeah. Good Good use of a class. Yeah. And I really wanted to interview her about it because it seemed interesting. And based on the research in her class and like what she was talking about that had, that had previously never existed, like a legal stand, like frame point for thinking about black feminist uh, marriage abolition. Um, but... She like she would be like, yeah, I want to do the interview, but I don't have this time and blah, blah, blah. So that was like an instance where I was like, oh, damn it. Like, I want to interview Annika, but now I feel like she's like avoiding me to avoid being interviewed when before she just wanted to see me all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Um, but I would still really like to interview one of my former professors. Sure. Uh, because... Like, Annika Simpson and the other gender studies department head of where I went to school, Lauren Weiss, who was the head for most of my time there. Where did you go to school? Uh, American University. Mm-hmm. Um, Lauren Weiss was, like, fucking amazing. She's a genius and, like, such an inspiration. Demystification issue one in the thanks, too. She's in the thanks because she's just, like, someone who really makes philosophy so about your experience and your feelings in this way that really made me understand philosophy a lot better and we still had to like read a lot of boring philosophies in her gender theory class like we had to read like john stuart mill or whatever (laughs) uh and like she would ask like how do you guys feel about the reading i'd be like this was boring and she'd be like yeah i know (laughs) um but i think it 
made me a better interviewer having to read a lot of what I had to read for her class. Reading boring philosophy made you a better interviewer? Or just reading philosophy in general mm. made me a better interviewer. Um, it made me think a lot more critically about like words I use and like structures I feel connected to and like why I feel connected to another person in general. Um, uh huh. Those kind of questions. Yeah. Uh, but it made me more thoughtful, I would say. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, do you have anything, is there like anything on deck for issue three that you're willing to mention or is it all, you got to keep it under wraps? I mean, I would, I'm going to mention some stuff. I don't care if Ambrose gets mad. Um, <laughs> cause Ambrose is just like a lot more guarded than I am. Sure. Um, and it's funny doing collaborative projects with your best friend. Yeah. Cause it makes us like really fight sometimes or like really like, I don't know, sometimes we've. I feel like there's like a a weird vibe, but it's because we're like working on a project together and we have such different ways of working. Sure. Um, but I'm really excited for this interview I did with these two people who do a project called Happy Nine Nine. And it's like, I don't know how to describe it other than like a project as an excuse to create things but they're mostly known for creating virtual clothes. So like clothes for Sims? No, like just clothes that don't exist. Like, okay. Like rendered, like 3D rendered like clothes. Um, but as they said in the interview, like they want to expand to comics and I don't know, a lot of other stuff, but it's a couple. Uh, Natalie Wen and Dom Lopez and they're really cool and we did a three hour long interview, Whoa. which was like, the most hellish thing I've ever transcribed. Oh, yeah. Um, but I I really like it and I'm really excited for it. And it's the longest thing demystification will ever do. Hey, girl. Ruby, sit. Good girl. Um, like in the Air Max article transcribed, that was 10 pages. Yeah. And this is like 25, you know? Yeah, three hours is a lot of pages. Yeah. Are you gonna? You're gonna edit it down, I assume, right? That's like already kind of edited down, uh, but we need to edit it more down. Yeah. I mean, Siobhan, you know Siobhan. Yeah. Yeah, Siobhan's our editor, um, and she's remarkable because me and Ambrose would be lost without her. Oh. Siobhan like actually understands grammar, whereas, as you know, I'm like I haven't read a book. <laughs> <laughs> the um, yeah, yeah, and it's nice to hear how collaborative it is. Yeah. Like you see it in the masthead or whatever, mm -hmm. but like I love the the ways that like, you know, so many pe people are involved in making any one thing happen. Yeah. I feel really lucky to have also the like friend group sources that we have for demystification. Like yeah. Siobhan, for example, who's like, will just come on and edit like because she cares about the project. Right, you and know, loves hardcore more exactly. than anyone. Yeah, like yeah, and she's amazing at what she does, and she's so thorough and like really cares about making it an amazing end end goal. And like John will come on and just like do it. <laughs> He'll talk to ten old hardcore guys about right. why they love a shoe, you know? Yeah, and like he's like excited to do it. Um, and yeah, things like that make me feel really lucky to have like this 
network of people who are invested in like demystification. Demystification, I want a demystification, I want a demystification about what's going on. And that is that. That's episode 40 in the can. Um, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Paola. I certainly enjoyed having it. I'm really looking forward to demystification um, zine number three coming out. Uh, but in the meantime, I think they just reprinted copies of number two, so I'll put the link in the show notes. You can pick that up um, for 100%, 100%, for 100%, 100%, for sure. Get it. You need this thing in your life. It's fantastic. Um, what else can I tell you? Oh, thank yous are in order. Thank you to Paola Martinez, my guest. Thank you to... Um, Zounds, the band that sung this perfect song, Demystification, that a perfect zine got named after, that itself was named after a perfect concept. What, what a lineage. Um, who else is getting thanked? La Cara Occulta. Uh, that's Maddie. That's Maddie D from uh, the book, the Punk Alley Bookstore. Uh, that's his band from a long time ago. I don't know who else is in it. He gave me the seven inch Pizzeria Fatale. Find it on the internet. Buy a book from Maddie. Look for. Um, Maddie Zine, The Alley. It's a newsletter about The Alley. Very few get published. Sometimes he mails them to me. The last one I got I found in a free box at the Chicken Hut. You know, so who fucking knows? Just keep your eyes peeled. Does a, did a, do you see a piece of paper that looks like it was drawn on by a crazy person? It might be a copy of The Alley. And if so, it's full of cool stuff. But anyway, enough about Maddie. On to me and my newsletter, Life Harvester. It's monthly. You get it in emails for free. I'll put a little link in the show notes as well, or you could pay for it. There's a couple of different options for that. I'll put a link to one. I'll put my email. You can reach out to me if you want to do the other ones. And listen, you get a piece of mail every month. I fold a piece of paper in my little folding machine, and I put it in an envelope, and I send it in the mail to you with a cute stamp. All right? And you want that. You like me. You like my personality. You want to support my mission to get attention. Just get constant attention, get paid attention to at all times. That's what I want. That's what you want. It's very symbiotic, this situation. Uh, working together, we can build the utopia that, that we want to see. I don't know, man. It's fucking hot in my room. I'm, my brain doesn't work, and I got to be done with this. So, you know, no cops, no creeps, no borders. Fuck ice, free Palestine, peace in the pizzeria. I'm out.